Praise the Lord. It's good to see everybody tonight. Nice and warm. Do be aware that there is a frost uh, advisory tonight. So you guys do with that whatever you need to. Cover the plants. Put the car in the garage. Whatever you need to do. Amen. Uh, We also need some help after service. Uh, If there are some strong men, (coughs) strong people, that would be able to help us take down uh, tables after service to get ready for Friday's youth rally. Amen. Uh, If you can stay and help with that, that would be greatly appreciated. Uh, Speaking of... This Friday at 7.30 p.m. is our youth rally. Uh, it's a section event, section four event. All of the youth from the section are going to be here. And we're going to have an awesome time in Jesus. So uh, all of us are invited. From ages uh, zero to a thousand. So if you fit in that, please come. Amen. All right, let's all stand. We do want to pray for uh, the youth rally this Friday. Uh, We also want to pray for the situation in Florida. Uh, Hurricane Ian made landfall today, and it is, from what I understand, fairly devastating and will continue to be so. Amen. Some of our brothers and sisters are down there. They live down there. Some are, are down there for general conference already. And so we want to pray for the whole situation, pray for their safety, that God's hand would be upon that, and uh, everything would transpire according to the will and plan of God. Amen. Let's all pray. Lord Jesus, you're an awesome God. We worship, we praise, we laud, and we magnify you in this place tonight, because that you alone are worthy to receive all worship and to receive all praise. Thank you, Jesus, for this opportunity you've afforded us tonight to again to enter again into the presence of Almighty God, that we can gather together in this place, in the presence of Almighty God, worshiping and praising our Creator. Hallelujah, Jesus. We pray for our service on Friday, Lord Jesus, that you would meet with us, that you would minister to every need, that you would transform, that you would change lives, that you would draw people nigh unto you, cause them to become more like you in this place. I pray, Lord, for the situation in Florida, that you, your hand would be upon the entire situation. For our brothers and sisters particularly, that your hand would be upon them, that you would dispatch angels to encamp about them and protect them from all forms of harm and injury. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would show yourself strong in this situation and that miracles, signs and wonders would be, would run rampant throughout this entire situation. That you would protect, that you would save, that you would deliver. In Jesus' name, hallelujah, use this situation, I pray, to the salvation of the lost, to the perfection of the saints, and to the glory of God. I pray for our service here this evening, that your word would go forth, that it would not go forth void, but that it would accomplish all that you please, and prosper in the thing whereto you send it. I pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to understand, that we would submit ourselves wholly and completely unto the will and plan of God for us today, and above all else, that your name would be glorified here tonight. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Hallelujah, Jesus. Can we take just a moment and worship God tonight? Because He is altogether worthy. Amen.
Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. We can delight ourselves in the Lord our God tonight. We can rejoice tonight in the God of our salvation. Praise God. Praise God. And we can do that no matter what our present circumstance is. And that's awesome, at least to me, that I can still rejoice even in the midst of horrible circumstances, I can have joy unspeakable and full of glory. Amen. Praise God. God bless you. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. Tonight we're going to start a a teaching series on uh, Genesis and particularly the first 11 chapters. And uh, for our scripture text, our opening scripture text anyway, we're going to read some Verses out of the book of First uh, Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, the first four verses starts off by saying this. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He arose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, in the first four verses, we have a pretty good synopsis of what we would classify as the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the good news, the hope of salvation, if we will apply the death, burial, and resurrection to our lives. But, We have to understand that that didn't happen in a vacuum. Jesus didn't just create sinners and then decide right after that to die on a cross to save them. That's not how everything transpired. So he goes on and he he builds on that. Starting with verse 12. He says, Now if Christ be preached that He rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is vain also. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins." Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. Okay, so he's going on now to emphasize the necessity of the resurrection of the dead. And I'm not going to spend too much time on that. You could spend a lot of time on the necessity of, of understanding that. But we're just going to take Paul at his word. It is necessary for Christ to be raised from the dead. Now let's move on. Verses 21 and 22. He continues. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Okay, now we're getting a little bit closer to our topic matter here. Salvation didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened for a reason. We weren't created sinners. That happened at some point in time. 
When did that happen? Well, we're, we're going to go on to talk about a lot of things. But one of the things that I've heard people say, not a whole lot, not in, not in our organization, I haven't heard it a whole lot, but I have heard it, uh, more probably in the, the Christianity at large, if I can use that term. Phrases like this. The Old Testament doesn't really matter. I don't really need to understand that. All I need to understand is the gospel. The, you know, that Jesus, Jesus is and that He died for my sins and I just need to receive that. And that's all that's important. And those, those people that don't know anything about the Old Testament, they don't understand a whole lot about salvation. They don't understand almost everything about salvation. They understand Jesus Christ died. But we're going to go into specifics on that. But please understand, we need to know the Old Testament. And in particular, the book of Genesis. We'll go into reasons why. He continues in verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. There's no way you'll even understand that phraseology without a, a, at least a cursory understanding of the book of Genesis. Howbeit that was not first, which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Amen. So, we get an understanding here uh, that it is because something having to do with this first Adam, whoever that might be. If I have no understanding of Old Testament, I have no clue who that is. Everyone's heard of Adam and Eve. Okay. Uh, probably. But there, there's, there's no scriptural context for these statements. Okay. So, how do I understand salvation truly, completely? I need an understanding of Old Testament, particularly of Genesis. And so for that reason and for all kinds of other reasons that we're going to go into tonight, we need to understand the book of Genesis. Ever since man was upon the face of the earth, we look up at the stars and wonder. Has anyone ever done that? Especially on a, in an uh, open field somewhere where there are no city lights. On a clear night. You can look up, and those stars are bright, and there's a lot of them. A lot of people, from time to time, if they have any time at all, if they're on their way in to get ready to go somewhere, or, or you know they're in a hurry, they got other stuff going on, they're probably not going to take too much notice. Well, that's pretty cool, but I got stuff to do. But if you got time to just sit out there and look at them and gaze and, and wonder and think. Your mind starts to, to coalesce around a few questions. There's a lot of stars up there. 
How do they come to be? How many are there? You observe the unfolding of a flower. And it's absolutely marvelous. It's, it's wondrous. You try to peel it apart and it just falls apart. But if you just wait a, a week or two, depending on the species of flower, it just does it all on its own. And it's big and it's bright and it's beautiful. And it's amazing. You witness the birth of a child. I got to witness two births, both by C-section, but uh, it was amazing. It was absolutely a miracle. I just, I understood the process. I understood that eventually there's going to be a baby come out into the world. I read all kinds of books, and uh, so I was ready. No, I, was, I was ready for it. I wasn't ready at all. I wasn't ready, not, not even a little bit. When I took my first look at, at that crumpled up little bag of flesh, that was my crumpled up bag of flesh. That was awesome. That was amazing. The miracle of, of, of a, a child being born into the world. What is it about these things and all kinds of other things that I could have mentioned that, that seem to touch and affect the very best parts of us? It really gets us to, to wonder and, and to, to imagine. And, and in honest moments, I've got to think this happens to everyone, that there's got to be something more to this creation. There's got to be something more out there. All of these little miracles, all of these these things about, about creation, about nature, are just so miraculous. How does it happen? You can dive into, into the science of it, and scientists discovered a lot of the processes and the, the, the laws and all of that stuff, and those are fascinating if you're into that kind of thing. But uh, one other person, okay. They put their hand down. <laughs> but... But at the end of it, I mean, it, it had to have originated somewhere. Who built that flower? Who programmed it to, to open like that? Who put the stars up there? Where does all of this originate from? And does it even matter? Does the answer to that question even matter? Does it matter if I think the universe evolved 15 to 20 billion years ago from a Big Bang? There are a lot of Christians, more than you might think, that will say, no, it doesn't matter. As long as, long as you adhere to New Testament salvation, the age of the earth doesn't matter. Creation week, and we're going to talk about that, Lord willing, the next lesson. Did that, were, that, were those six literal 24-hour periods? Or were there great spans of time? Does it matter? Yes. It absolutely matters. And we'll go into the reasons why that. Does it matter how we believe everything came into existence? Yes. It matters what we believe about the Old Testament. It matters how we understand the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. 
When people say they don't need to know or understand the Old Testament, what they're saying is all of that's no longer important for one reason or another. Maybe they think all of it was fulfilled in Christ, which is not true. It wasn't all fulfilled. It's still relevant. The covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, that still applies today, folks. We're still recipients of the Abrahamic covenant. Did you know that? Do you know what that is? If I don't know what the Old Testament says, I have no clue what that even means. More specifically, typically, when you dig down to the heart of the matter, they're saying what we believe about Genesis isn't important. And there's a reason that they say that. There's a reason they specify Genesis. It's because Genesis is where we see the creation account. And that ends up being a very big deal. Okay, so why are we going to study the first 11 chapters of Genesis? Why study Genesis to begin with? Well, it's the book of beginnings. We're going to find a lot of our doctrines established here in Genesis. And we're going to go more specifically into that. We need to understand the events surrounding Adam to understand New Testament salvation. We've already alluded to that. Okay, so why this portion of Genesis then? Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are the most disputed and argued portion of Scripture. Why is that? Before Genesis chapter 12, we have very little to no physical evidence of anything that happened. Almost none. There was a flood that destroyed everything, so all of that is completely gone. And there's no real surviving historical written records of the genealogies, except for what we've received in Scripture, of uh, Noah to Abram. We have almost nothing of, those, of that time period between the creation account and where Abram comes into the picture. So it's, it's very disputed. It's very argued. And because of that, because there's no actual archaeological, scientific evidence that we can dig up or records that we can go back and look at, a lot of people want to, what they call, allegorize Genesis. And what that means is it's not literal history. It's just a story account of, of concepts that are true. For example, the serpent in the garden. That's not actually a person. That's, that represents the concept of evil. The days aren't literal 24-hour period days. They just represent great spans of time. And why do people want to do that? Why do people want to leave off the, the uh, well, I'll say it this way, the most basic principles of Bible interpretation? It's listed as history. And so, unless otherwise stated, it needs to be taken literally. But they want to allegorize it. Why? Because science 
Science has demonstrated, folks, that the Genesis account simply cannot be true. And so now what people want to do, they don't want to give up their belief in God, but they can't accept Genesis anymore. Maybe we can merge the two together. Maybe we can find a happy medium somewhere. If you just take the text, and that's it. No presuppositions, no preconceived ideas, no, no training about evolution, no, nothing. Just You come out from, from a rock that you've been living in 20 years, and we plop this in front of you. What you're going to understand from this is that God created everything in six days, and he rested the seventh. That's what you're going to understand. But because of science, we don't. When people struggle to accept the validity of the first verse of Genesis, you're going to have very serious problems with the rest of the book. If you cannot accept Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, as being literally true, you will struggle with the rest of the book. Why else would we study Genesis 1 through 11? Because it's absolutely fascinating. The stuff we do understand about the time period is absolutely phenomenal. And we do have a few evidences that we can look at. We will look at that. And I should take this opportunity to say that a lot of the stuff I could say about this has already been said in other messages. Okay, uh, we may revisit it for purpose of review, but that's not going to be the focus. The focus of the study that that I want to get across is that because of our culture today, the single biggest argument that people receive, the single biggest argument against Christianity that gets people convinced that it's not true is this ridiculous notion of evolution. That science has disproved Scripture. So I want to reaffirm our faith in Scripture during this study. I want to demonstrate to you that although at first blush, they look like they got some good stuff going on. But when you dig down into it just a little bit, it completely falls apart. And I'll demonstrate that to you. We're going to look at a lot of Scripture to demonstrate our points. Culturally, the most effective argument against Christianity, and by effective I mean leading people away from faith in God. It's a train wreck as far as science is concerned. But the most effective argument against Christianity is by showing people that science has disproven this portion of Scripture. The biggest argument is not a trinity versus one God, although it's important to understand that. We absolutely need to understand that, but that's not the most effective argument today. I think it was probably 50 years ago. It's not baptism in the titles versus baptism in Jesus' name, although you need to understand the distinction and why that is. The question is, did God create everything or did it create itself? Because how you answer that question 
is going to determine a whole lot of things about who you are and where you go in life. Humanism has set up a very effective discipleship program for their worldview. Extremely effective. They have every base covered. They got you at preschool. They do. They got you at preschool. Look at the little preschool books about the dinosaurs. Everybody loves dinosaurs. Look at old T-Rex here. He lived 80 to 100 million years ago. He's an ancestor of this bird. Who is an ancestor of this monkey? Who is your ancestor? Is that scriptural? There are those that would argue with you. And I have no idea how they do it. I don't. I've, I've looked at their arguments. I've read the scriptures that they use. I don't see it. I don't see it at all. But that is not scriptural. And yet, under the guise of education, and I'm not saying every teacher is like this because they're not. There are definitely good teachers out there. But I've got to stand up here if I want to remain in good conscience and let people know that the public school system is not there for your child's education. It is there for indoctrination. If you look at the history of public schools, this is off the notes a little bit, but you'll see that they actually started with Martin Luther. Martin Luther started them. And what was the purpose Martin Luther wanted to establish these schools? To indoctrinate people into Christianity. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think that's a good thing. We need, we need to be discipled into truth. Absolutely. But the purpose, the original purpose of it is not education. It is indoctrination. They've just turned it around. It's a different religion that they're indoctrinating our students into today. Humanism. They'll teach it all through school. They'll reinforce it with questions. If you look at the process, it's actually, the process itself, it's, it's, it's amazing. They got it down. It's good. Museums. Take a road trip to a museum, and what do you see there? Dinosaurs, millions of years. How the fossil record shows millions and billions of years of evolution. It's simply not true. It contradicts Scripture. It contradicts Scripture. Okay, we've talked about worldviews before, uh, so I'm just going to touch on it and move on. Worldviews are what we uh, filter evidence and data through. It's how we interpret that evidence and data. Uh, they're based on presuppositions, and presuppositions are what we presuppose to be true. Everyone has them. For a biblical Christian, my presupposition is that the Word of God is inerrant, it's infallible, it is always right, and when I contradict it, I'm wrong. That's my presupposition. 
I can't demonstrate that scientifically, the validity of it. I can't go into a laboratory and test it, falsify it. I can't do that. Why do I believe it? Because it just is. Why does the secular humanist believe in the Big Bang? Because it just is. It had to be that way. That's their presupposition. All right. How do we determine a worldview? Why do we have the one that we have today? Well, worldviews, belief systems, they can come from any, anywhere. Parents and upbringing uh, are traditionally where we first encounter a worldview. We will largely grow up thinking how our parents do. Later on, friends and peers are going to start forming some of that. Our education is going to have a play in that. And that's what the public school system is depending on. Culture and experiences will form our worldview. Everyone has one. Most people, though, are not aware of them. It's kind of like saying um, everyone does philosophy. Most people just don't do it well. Everyone's a philosopher. Most people just don't do it very well. Okay, so our scripture text. The gospel is extremely important to understand, to fulfill in our lives, but it's built upon something. We can see from the writings of the Apostle Paul that understanding what happened in the Garden of Eden is integral to our understanding of the cross. Because if we don't know what happened in the book of Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, we're not going to know what sin is. You can go down the street and call someone a sinner. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean that I'm a sinner? Well, it means you sinned against God. Okay, what, what does that mean? You're in rebellion. Okay. Where do you get that definition? Where does that definition come from? I hope not from you. Because then I can make my definition. It's got to come from somewhere. It does come from Scripture, right? It comes from Genesis. We understand what sin is from the book of Genesis. That's where it's first encountered. We're not going to understand God's response to sin in our lives. Why does He feel about sin the way He does? He just does, I guess. No, He doesn't just does. Moving on from there, we see the concept of a covenant relationship first introduced in the book of Genesis and all that that entails. And if we don't understand that, if we don't understand anything about a covenant relationship, we're introduced to marriage. The first covenant that we're exposed to. Till death do us part. That's what a covenant is. When we enter into a covenant with someone, it's not a contract. It's not, if I can just find the loophole, get a good enough lawyer, I'm out. God did establish a legal contract with us. He established a covenant relationship with us. And if we don't have that understanding from the book of Genesis and see that lived out all through the book of the old, books of the Old Testament, we're not going to understand our relationship with Jesus, or worse yet, His relationship with us. 
we're not going to understand that He's going to be with us no matter what. He'll never break covenant with us. We walk away. We break covenant, but He never does. We're not going to understand that when times get to, to be our very worst. He's just going to look for a loophole. He's going to look for a way out. Why not? I would. That's the only understanding I have is a legal contract. I would expect him to leave at some point. Because that's what I would do. So we won't be able to trust God sufficiently in times of trial. And when we're tempted to doubt the most, we're going to think he's going to leave. We won't understand who God is or why he gets to make all the rules. That's settled in the book of Genesis. God gets to make the rules because He owns everything. He made everything. We're living in His house. Typically, someone to say, if you don't like the rules, go somewhere else. But there's nowhere else to go. There's only one universe and we're in it. And because of that, we wouldn't understand the significance of Jesus being the God of the Old Testament manifest in flesh. If our first experience with God is Jesus, I'm glad you had an experience with Jesus. But you're not going to understand who Jesus is unless you know who God is in the Old Testament. Because Jesus is that God manifest in flesh in the New Testament. So we've got to have that understanding. Okay, so the book of Genesis proper. Genesis is as some of you may already know, the first book of the Bible. It's also the first book of Moses, uh, which, along with Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, constitute the Pentateuch, or the Torah. The book of Genesis is foundational and necessary for our understanding of Scripture at large, both Old Testament and New Testament. I found this quote... It's a little bit lengthy, but I like it, so I'm going to read it. This quote is by a man named uh, Dyson Haig, M.A., Professor of Liturgics. I think that's how you pronounce that. Wycliffe College, Toronto, Ontario. He says this about the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is, in many respects, the most important book in the Bible. It is of the first importance because it answers not exhaustively, but sufficiently. The fundamental questions of the human mind. It contains the first authoritative information given to the race concerning these questions of everlasting interest. The being of God. The origin of the universe. The creation of man. The origin of the soul. The fact of revelation. The introduction of sin. The promise of salvation. The primitive division of the human race. The purpose of the elected people. The preliminary part in the program of Christianity. In one word, in this inspired volume of beginnings, we have the satisfactory explanation of all the sin and misery and contradiction now in this world and the reason of the scheme of redemption. Or, to put it another way, the book of Genesis is the seed in which the plant of God's word is enfolded. It is the starting point of God's gradually unfolded plan of the ages. Genesis is the plinth of the pillar of the divine revelation. It is the root of the tree of the inspired scriptures. It is the source of the stream of the holy writings of the Bible. If the base of the pillar is removed, the pillar falls. 
If the root of the tree is cut out, the tree will wither and die. If the fountain head of the stream is cut off, the stream will dry up. And that's why everyone is attacking the book of Genesis today. No, one, no one's too concerned about the book of Amos. If I can disprove the book of Amos, I'll show that Scripture is it's irrelevant. It's false. You don't ever hear anybody talking about Habakkuk or the book of 3 John. Everybody attacks Genesis. Why is that? Well, there's a very good reason for that. Because if Genesis falls, everything else does fall with it. The Bible as a whole is like a chain hanging upon two staples. The book of Genesis is the one staple. The book of Revelation is the other. Take away either staple, the chain falls in confusion. If the first chapters of Genesis are unreliable, the revelation of the beginning of the universe, the origin of the race, and the reason of its redemption are gone. If the last chapters of Revelation are displaced, the consummation of all things is unknown. If you take away Genesis, you've lost the explanation of the first heaven, the first earth, the first Adam, and the fall. If you take away Revelation, you've lost the completed truth of the new heaven and the new earth, man redeemed, and the second Adam in paradise regained. Further, in the first chapters of the book of Genesis, you have the strong and sufficient foundation of the subsequent developments of the kingdom of God. We'll go all into all this. The root germ of all anthropo anthropology, soteriology, Christology, Satanology, to say nothing of the ancient and modern problems of the mystery and culpability of sin, the, di the divine ordinance of the Lord's day, the unity of the race, and God's establishment of matrimony and the family life. Unquote. All right. So in other words, we see the beginning of all kinds of things in the book of Genesis. In Genesis, we find our introduction to God. We see the creation of everything, the entire universe, the earth, plants, animals, mankind. We see the beginning of human institutions, professions, crafts. We see the origin of sin and death. And we see illustrated the devious working of Satan in human life. Most of all, though, we see the beginning of the history of God's redemptive story of man. Genesis lists the names of the early ancestors in the lineage of the Messiah and the beginning of the Hebrew people through whom the Bible and the Savior come. So there's all kinds of stuff packed up in there. And that's just in 11 chapters. Wow. Okay, the authorship of the book of Genesis, along with the other four books of the Torah, are generally, almost universally, I think, attributed to Moses. We see in a number of places in Scripture where the Lord is recording, where He's writing. Exodus 17:14 says, The Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. Exodus 34:27, The Lord said unto Moses, Write thou these words. For after the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. Exodus 24, 4 says, And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. Numbers 33 and 2 says, Moses wrote their goings out according to their journeys by the commandment of the Lord. Okay. And there are several others in there. Moses did a lot of writing by the commandment of the Lord. The date of authorship. Based on the biblical data that we see, Moses has to be placed somewhere in the 15th century B.C., What's the 
biblical data. Well, Judges 11.26 says this, While Israel dwelt in Hesbon and her towns, and in Aor and her towns, and in all the cities that uh, be along by the coast of Arnon, 300 years, why therefore did ye not recover them within that time? Okay, so, uh, the snippet of the story here is that uh, Jephthah was letting the king of the Ammonites know that, no, we don't possess this illegally. In fact, uh, it was taken from, originally, Hespin was taken originally from Sihon, the king of the Amorites, 300 years ago from their time period. Okay, that would be 300 years since uh, Israel had left Egypt and they were in the wilderness. We get more specific in 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 1. It says this, It came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month Ziph, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. So theologians smarter than myself have determined that the fourth year of Solomon's reign ran from September 986 B.C. to September 967 B.C putting the Exodus at April 1446 to 1447 B.C., depending on if you're calculating from the beginning of Solomon's reign or the end of Solomon's reign, or the 15th century B.C. So that's why we believe that. That's when this book was written. All right, so now we'll get into it proper. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. And we're not going to go verse by verse, so don't worry about that. But 1-1 one, one is very important. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. This is one of the most misquoted uh, scriptures in all of, all of the Bible. Heaven is singular here, at least in the King James. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So, we read, in the beginning, God creates and builds into this creation something called time. Now, to try to understand time seems like, well, yeah, duh, time. But try to understand creation without it. What would this place be like if there were no time? Can you imagine that? Probably not. We understand what the words mean, no time. We have no time all the time. <clears throat> We're always out of time. We can always use more. But, time clicks on at an even rate for all people everywhere. Time is built into this thing. Things come into existence, they age, and they eventually pass out of existence. That's the natural order, at least now. So in the beginning, that means that this thing did have a beginning. This hasn't gone on forever. The universe, all of the created order, it has a beginning. And the beginning is found in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Time is necessary for all of this to work the way it needs to. Why did God build time into this thing? I don't know. One thing I know is that deadlines really help me move along. 
if I'm feeling like I'm pressured and I'm out of time, then I got to get busy. And now all of a sudden it's a priority. I remember, I remember being in school, and I remember, take your pick, assignments that I had just forgotten about. And then the teacher's like reminding us, now remember, tomorrow in class that assignment is due. And I was just, you get that shock. That's right. I haven't even started that yet. So I go home and I push everything else aside. I can't, I can't eat, Dad. I, I got work to do. I got to get this done. I cram it all out, stay late at night, get it done. <sighs> Turn it in. But wouldn't it have been nicer if I just planned it out? But time helps me with that. There's deadlines. So that helps. That helps motivate people. I don't know if that's why God put it in here, but I like to think of it as a help. In the beginning, God. God is mentioned as being already present before the creation of anything else. As I've mentioned before, His existence isn't uh, debated. It's not. It, no one in Scripture tries to demonstrate or prove God's existence. Uh, he just is. And then we move on. God is in the beginning. Before time was created, God was. How long before time was God created? The question is irrelevant. Because there was no time before that. Right? So it doesn't, it doesn't, it's a meaningless question. But He has always been. He is and He always will be. God creates space. God creates matter. Okay, so God creates all of this. How? The spoken word. That's why we always encourage people when you're praying as much as possible, pray out loud. When you're worshiping, worship out loud. Speak those words out. There's power in that. The Bible says death and life are in the power of the tongue. That's very true. There's power in the spoken word. God can read our thoughts. Sure He can. But when you speak it out, it does something for you and it does something for those around you. God spoke. God could have thought everything into existence, but He didn't. He spoke everything into existence. Amen. There's power in that. And He he created everything out of nothing. And that's important because if He created something out of stuff that was already here, if if He got here and there was stuff already made and He just rearranged it, then it's, he's a usurper. It's not his. Not legally. His by right of might, maybe. No one else is going to take it from him. But it's not his. But because he created it out of nothing, now it's his. There's a story about a guy that uh, thinks he can, create, he can create life too. So he, he tells God, I, I can create life. Okay, go ahead. So he starts getting some, some mud together. He's like, uh, get your own mud. Make your own materials. I had to make mine. Of course, that's impossible. Not with God. So demonstrating that he created everything out of nothing is extremely important. That means all of this is his. 
And that means he gets to make the rules. And he's perfectly right and just in doing so. You may not like it. You may rebel against it. God's given you that power. But at the end of time, at the culmination of all things, all of us are going to give an account for how we lived our lives. Okay, so this is the beginning. The absolute beginning. In secular apologetics, this event would be known as the Big Bang. So now the question comes, couldn't God have used the Big Bang to create everything? Couldn't God have used evolution to create all the life forms that we see today? Yes, He could have. He could do whatever He wants. But He didn't. God could have made the plan of salvation be uh, baptized in the name of the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker. Eat a hamburger and tip the waiter and you're good to go. He could do whatever he wants. But he he didn't make the plan of salvation that. He made the plan of salvation be baptized in Jesus' name, repent of your sins, be filled with the Holy Ghost. That's the plan of salvation. He could have created this however he wanted, but he didn't. He only created it one way. And we see that way in Scripture. We see it in Scripture. And it's because we don't understand Scripture. I'm not saying necessarily this group here, but in the United States, it's because we don't have a solid, firm understanding of Scripture that people can come with all of these crazy ideas And we're like, oh, oh, yeah, that must be true. The Bible can't be right now. How does someone get to that place at all? Because they don't understand their Bible. They don't understand the Word of God. And or, they don't see it as infallible, inerrant, inspired. When someone gets up and says the Bible is true all the time, it's never wrong, that bothers some people. And it bothers some people because we don't have that in our experience. I've never been always right. I've never known anybody that's been always right. I've known people who think they are, but no one that actually is. I don't know anything about creation that's infallible or perfect. That's never entered into my experience. So when someone gets up and says, the Word of God is perfect, it's infallible, it can never be wrong. can never be wrong? And, and people, people chafe at that. But folks, yeah, it can never be wrong. We have to conform to it. The problem comes when we want it to conform to me. That's when the problems arise. When I have a higher standard of truth than Scripture, and I am judging Scripture line by line based upon my higher standard of truth, when I get to that place, folks, it's done. Because I promise you at some point, 
There's going to be a discrepancy. And which one's going to be wrong? The Bible's going to be wrong. At least that's what I'm going to think. No, the Bible's never wrong. Never wrong. But I'm going to think the Bible's wrong because of my higher standard, quote-unquote, of truth. So when science says, that's wrong, I'm going to say, yeah, okay, they're contradicting. Science is right, the Bible's wrong. And a lot of people fall into that. We cannot allow ourselves to fall into that. And we've got to be able to explain scripturally anyway to people that that is not right. Scripture is correct. Scripture is always correct. So understanding that, we've got to know the Bible. So why couldn't God have used the Big Bang? Why couldn't God use evolution to create everything? Well, there's a couple reasons I'm going to list just off the top of my head. The time period needed for the Big Bang to get to where we are today is problematic from a biblical perspective. If we trace everything down scripturally, we're going to, and we may do that, another lesson. But if we trace all the genealogies down, every, everywhere that we see dates and, and, and years listed, we come up with about 6,000 years of human history. That's what we come up with. So where do we get billions of years? They need billions of years for everything to take place. And unfortunately, that's still not enough time. It's still not enough. <clears throat> There's, uh, I'm going to get these figures wrong, but it's something like this. The chances of, the chances of uh, proteins just randomly assembling itself into something resembling life is 10 to the 140th power. Now, to put that into perspective, the amount of atoms calculated by someone with a lot of time and, and bored to tears, the amount of atoms in the entire observable universe is 10 to the 80th power. That would be like, almost like, hiding one atom in the whole universe and picking it twice. What are the chances do you think are of that? Not very good. And that's in the time period that they've allotted. Don't, don't quote me on those figures, but it's something along those lines. In any case... It's problematic from a biblical perspective because we only find 6,000 years. So where do we get the billions? Well, that's when we have to go with a day-age theory or a gap theory, which we'll talk about next lesson, Lord willing. <coughs> Inserting large periods of time into the book of Genesis chapter 1. The other problem we have is doctrinal. If that were true, if God used evolution to create everything, that would put death before sin. And we cannot have death before sin. Death comes because of sin, not previous to sin. That's a very serious doctrinal issue that a lot of people miss when they want to put evolution into Scripture. We'll get more into that as well. Amen. So, uh, serving tonight is kind of an introduction to the study. 
Uh, we'll get into the, the book proper next week, Lord willing. And I'm excited because there's a lot of cool stuff in here. Amen. Let's all stand. Lord Jesus, you're an awesome God, and I am so thankful for you and for your so great salvation. I'm thankful, Lord Jesus, that you have revealed unto us the entire process, not just a snippet at the very end, but from the very beginning, you have been speaking to us, revealing truth to us. Help us, Lord Jesus, to love all of Scripture, not just our, our, our favorite verses, our favorite chapters, but to love all of it. It is all profitable. I pray, Lord I pray in Jesus' name that you would put a passion and a zeal and a thirst in all of our hearts more and more for truth, for the Word of God, for the things of God. And I pray, Lord, that your name would be glorified in us and through us. These things we ask in Jesus' name.